Well, hey, welcome to Mosaic. Uh, my name's Aaron, uh, if you're a guest, uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, we're pumped that you're here. We're starting a brand new series this morning called I Love My Church. Uh, yeah, which makes sound, some of us are like, yes, I love my church. It's going to be awesome. And others of us are like, I don't know how I feel about church. Isn't loving church like a contradiction in terms? Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Um, and as we get rolling, uh, just so you know, we're, we're starting to utilize something that we used to utilize every week, and we took a hiatus, but we're using it again, called the version. Um, yeah, if you go to your apps, uh, app store, and just search Bible, your very first thing that's going to pop up is version. Uh, it's a Bible by LifeChurch.tv, and under there, there's live events, and if you just search Lincoln, uh, or Mosaic, or whatever, you're going to find it, and there's the scriptures, and the notes, and um, different things uh, for you to engage in, and and so just so you know, we're going to be using that every week. It's just a cool way to engage and stay up, and and plus, if the message gets boring, you know, it's like you can just be on Facebook and people are like, wow, they're really into the to notes. So just looking out for you, just looking out for you. So I'm curious to know, because uh, as a pastor, I'm always interested to know, but I'd love to know what your gut reaction is when you hear the word church. Um, and you're not going to hurt my feelings, right? If it's negative, I'm just going to assume that it's a different church that you're talking about. So what, what comes to, to mind? What do you feel? What words come to mind? Hypocrites. Hypocrites? Mm-hmm. Boring. Boring? Morning. Morning. Oh, morning. Yes. <laughs> Arrogance. Boring, yes. What's that? Judgmental. Judgmental. Yeah. Hate. Hate. Money. Money. Life. Life. That's a positive. That's the first one in a while. I don't know if you caught that. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Grace. Grace. Friends. Friends. It's interesting, you know, we, uh, obviously this is not really a fair representation of the general population um, because we are all in church on Sunday morning. So we are in some sense kind of church people or, you know, even if you don't believe in God and you're here this morning and you're not sure where you land with the whole Jesus church thing, you're at least open enough and curious enough to be here on Sunday morning. So you're probably more open than most. Uh, but even in this space, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear how many of those are really, really negative and probably not surprising, right? But you and I both know, like, you go outside of here and you start talking to unbelieving friends, family, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, and you know there's going to be a lot of negative, right? Ask them what they think about church uh, and church people, and you might not hear any positive uh, because there's this negative connotation culturally with church. Um, it's not cool to be a cool church, which is interesting because Jesus is, is kind of, like, made a comeback of, like, kind of being fashionable in some circles. You know, like, uh, it's not uncommon to hear artists and celebrities, you know, say different things, like, about Jesus. Like, one example, Mike, Mike Dirt of Green Day, right? What does he say? I'm down with JC. He's cool, you know? I hear stuff like that all the time, right? Or, or Jesus in film, for example, right? Buddy Christ, obviously. Dogma. Yes. If you're easily offended uh, when people make fun of your faith, don't watch that movie, right? God is a Lannis Moore set, all right? So just so you know, to prepare you. Uh, but Jesus, you know, Buddy Christ, uh, Passion of the Christ, obviously. Jesus Christ, Superstar. Yep, good musical. Jesus Bobbleheads, right? Going to the store, you got Jesus Bobbleheads. 
You got the lunch boxes with the, like the Last Supper on it, which is like right next to like Pee Wee Herman lunch boxes, you know, and they're right there next to each other, which is just kind of bizarre. What else we got? Jesus is my homeboy shirt. Anybody own one of those when they were really, really big? This is crazy. Both services, I was the only one who owned one of those. Yeah. Trucker cap, okay. Okay, I see other hands. I'm not the only one. Well, I had mine, and I remember watching on TV, and they had like one of those like celebrity blurbs where they're like celebrity news, the stuff that really impacts our lives. And they had, you know, this, they were talking about Pamela Anderson, and she was on the front of this magazine wearing a Jesus is my homeboy shirt. And I just remember that is so, I think, and that's so interesting, you know, that she's wearing Jesus is my homeboy shirt. Sure, she's a great gal, but, you know, she's Pamela Anderson. And, and then I, I remember seeing them on a bunch of other celebrities. Um, like Jessica Simpson, I remember Ashton Kutcher, uh, all these different celebrities. Uh, Jesus has become somewhat, somewhat fashionable. Another one, uh, staple, all right, Tim Tebow, all right, cultural icon. Uh, in fact, and you can't almost like, talk about Tim Tebow for any extended period of time without Jesus coming up. Uh, so much so that, you know, it's become a standing joke, right? SNL, I don't know if you saw that. Google it, it's really funny, or Hulu rather, it's, it's really funny. But even major publications, New York Times has talked about uh, Jesus in fashion, um, that it kind of comes in waves, but Jesus has become kind of a staple in popular, popular fashion. Right? And then music is an easy one, right? Jesus has been featured in so many different songs, everybody from Johnny Cash to Marilyn Manson to Green Day, Bruce Springsteen, I mean, and who could forget, right? Kanye, Jesus Walks, which is big not that long ago, Rolling Stone Magazine, right? Dresses Jesus, because we all know Kanye doesn't really appreciate the shock factor or anything. But I remember sitting there and listening to Kanye perform Jesus Walks on the Grammys, and I remember just being so, like, almost like this surreal moment where it's like, wow, like, it, you used to, like, die for aligning yourself with Jesus and claiming that name. Like, it used to cost you your life. Some places in the world still does, but in this particular time and place, in some circles, it's become somewhat fashionable, right? It's, it's interesting. But the same cannot be said as the, about the church, right? In fact, I would say if it's somewhat popular in certain circles to be cool with Jesus, uh, it's that much, it's just as unpopular to be cool with church. And, and I would say for us as a generation, even those of us who are church people, that we're not sure where we land on church. We have a lot of mixed feelings about organized religion in church. And Madonna has a great quote that I think sums it up pretty well, our generation. And she says, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with the teachings of Jesus but I am suspicious of organized religion. Right? Isn't that true of many of us? I mean, isn't that, for some of us, just our story? Even those of us who come to church, uh, I can tell you, most people, even that are connected at Mosaic, uh, most are far more comfortable to kind of be on the fringes, you know, and kind of watch from afar, not really sure about this thing, still checking it out, um, not really sure that they want to engage, not sure that they really trust me, maybe you shouldn't, you know? Or this church, this community of people, because many of us have, we have wounds, uh, we have scars given to us by organized religion and religious leaders. And that is definitely true of my story. Right, but I, what I would submit to you is that most of us, when it comes to our own scars, our own woundedness, the reasons that we right, tell evangelists with big hair and even bigger private jets and all these things that we're somewhat embarrassed to be associated with, what I would submit to you is most of that stuff is so far off from what Jesus intended for his church to be. And so in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the very beginning 
of the church. We're going to rewind the clock and hopefully start to strip away some of this baggage that has been attached to this word church along the way and get back to hopefully re-understanding or maybe understanding for the first time what the church was created to be. Because what you find and what we will find is that the church was never meant to be an institution. And it was never meant to be a hierarchy. It was never meant to be some of the destructive things and embarrassing things that it has been at certain periods through human history, but that it was meant to be something so much more beautiful and powerful. That from the beginning, the church was a movement. It was a movement of God's people, a movement of God's grace. Right? Jesus did not call together a committee and say, thus beeth the church, make some decisions. Right? There were no staff or hierarchies uh, there was no, it was no buildings and butts and seats and, and all these different things that we've attached to it. It was, it was a movement of God's grace that surrounded, it was centered on one simple event that happened in human history. And that was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I want to look back. We're going to rewind. We're going to go to Acts chapter 1. And just so you know, what's happening right here is this is at the tail end of Jesus' ministry. All right, so he's done a lot, said a lot. And he is, was betrayed, crucified, ascended, and then what we're told is for 40 days he spent time with followers. Showed himself to hundreds upon hundreds of people. 500 at one time. And Jesus is, is going to basically give them, these are essentially his parting words, which makes them particularly important. Chapter 1, verse 6, this is what it says. It says, Then they gathered around him, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Right? We think in terms of buildings and get it wrong, and they were wrong too. They weren't thinking movement either. Right? They were thinking physical kingdom, that Jesus was going to establish, he's going to reign, there were going to be really powerful minions, you know, um, have control and all these different things. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times, the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But, and get this, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, right? And they're thinking, power, okay, power is good, right? Going to give us power, that's good. What, what for? Why are you giving us this power? What's it to be used for? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And that little Greek word witness, right, is the same kind of idea we think about as a witness in court, right? It's somebody that is going to uh, testify, testify to something that happened, somebody that's going to accurately communicate what has happened. And he says, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the city where they were. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Judea, right? which is the, the bigger region of where they were. And then you're going to be my witnesses in Samaria, which is a place that they didn't really want to go, they didn't like to go, and to the ends of the earth. Right? Now just stop here. Just, just marinate on this with me for a minute. Right? There's a lot we could look at when it's about Jesus. Right? There's a lot of things he did, a lot of things he said. The Bible says that if all of it was written down, there wouldn't be enough books to contain all of it. A lot of different things that we could look at. Right? But this is on the tail end of all of it. Right? This is after the sermons. And this is after the miracles and the healings and the teachable moments along the way. After all of that, right, Jesus comes, and now this is what he's saying. Like this, is, this is, in a sense, this is the crescendo of Jesus' ministry. Right? These are the culminating words of everything that he's been doing. He's saying, now, get this, I'm leaving. This is what you need to get. You are going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. Right? We have the same idea being communicated in the other Gospels. Right? End of Matthew. End of Matthew, we have the Great Commission. 
which many of you are very familiar with. We talk about it pretty, pretty regularly because it's huge for us as a church. Jesus says, look, this is the very end, the last words in the book of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations and, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded to you. And surely I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. John, Jesus says the same thing. More succinctly, he says, look, just as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. This is the culminating act of Jesus' ministry, to send us, his church, as witnesses. And then watch what happens. Two weeks later, something incredible happens. Jesus ascends, leaves them with these words, and the disciples are all gathered in Jerusalem. Right? And there's this, there's this celebration, this festival, this religious festival going on called Pentecost. And we're told later in the book of Acts that there's people from all over the known world that are in Jerusalem for this particular celebration. 12 to 14 regions of the known world. And they're there. And while they're meeting, the disciples of Jesus, right? Mary's there, or his brothers are there, the apostles are there, they're praying. And God sends his spirit in such a powerful way that it shakes them all up. And one of the ways, one of the manifestations of God's spirit through his people, this power that he, by the way, said was going to happen, was that they were given the ability to speak in all these foreign languages they didn't know, to share with all these people that had come together in Jerusalem about what Jesus had done, just as Jesus had predicted. And so in, in chapter 2, verse 7, right, all these people are, are freaking out because they're like, what in the world is going on? Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Right? There's this huge commotion in Jerusalem. There's this huge stir. It's like, so this is a really neat trick. Like, I don't understand this. Right? This is before uh, internet, right? They did not, they can order the CDs and get the headphones and learn the language, right? This is something incredible. And they're like, what in the world? These are, guys are all from Galilee. How is this even possible? Amazed and perplexed in verse 12. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Right, so this is their double rainbow moment, right? What does this mean? How do I make sense of this? It's so intense. How is this happening? Right? Why is this happening? This message that's being spoken in our own language by the Galileans. And significantly, this, this message that's not just for one language, not just for one people, but from day one, an opening day of the church for all people. All languages, all people. Commotion is spreading. Right, this is just as Jesus had predicted. People are beginning to gather, talk, wonder what in the world is happening. Uh, I love, by the way, that one of the accusations of the disciples was that they were drinking too much, you know, and just babbling on, like drunk mumble, you know, and, and I love their response. It's like, no, it's like 10 in the morning, which is such a funny response, you know. It's like, it's not, we would not do that. We are religious people. You know, like, no, it's only 10 in the morning. We're not drunk. Come back later, you know? I don't know. <laughs> not what they're insinuating, but, you know, it's just a funny response. And then, they, and then Peter, in this moment, he's going to make sense of this, and he decides that this is the moment for the first sermon ever given. This is opening day of the church. He climbs up somewhere, maybe on some steps, where people can see him and hear him, and he begins to talk to all these Jews and converts to Judaism that are gathered together in Jerusalem to make sense of what God is doing in this moment, makes sense of why this is happening and how this is happening. And what he does first is he talks to them about the Old Testament. These are people that are familiar with the God of the Bible, the Old Testament. And so he points them back and he says, look, you should be amazed, but you shouldn't be surprised 
This is something that God said was going to happen. He said that this message was going to be a message. The message for God's people was going to be one that would be shared through us. It's going to be a message for the rest of the world, that we would be a light unto the nations. And this is what he's doing right now. So yes, be amazed. This is amazing. God is moving in human history in a way that he's never done before, but don't be surprised. You guys know it. It's in the scriptures, and it's starting right here, right now. And then what he's going to do is he basically just lays out the gospel of Jesus. He lays out the message. Verses 22 and 24, chapter 2. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. A lot of pressure here. First sermon ever given. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, he says, look, you guys know who Jesus is. Many of you have heard of him. Many of you have seen him perform miracles or you heard a message. Uh, his reputation precedes him. And you know, many of you know who he is. So he's done all these things. God has done these things through him. This man, though, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I love that. Verse 32, God, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all, and here's our word, witnesses of it. Just as Jesus said, right? We saw it with our own eyes. We sat down with him. We talked with him. We hugged him. We put our hands in his wounds. We shared a meal. This wasn't a Jesus, I feel that you are here, that you raised from the dead in some ethereal, hippie, incense, whatever type way. Or they're saying, we are witnesses. We saw it. And this wasn't something that happened like years and years and years ago. This was two months prior. Like two months ago, you remember Jesus, the one that you crucified right there 100 yards away? Yeah, many of you were there. You heard about it or you saw it. Yeah, that Jesus that you buried 200 yards away in that tomb over there, we are witnesses that he got up and walked out of there. In fact, we're not the only ones. There's hundreds of us. Go talk to these. Here's 500 people, if you, don't, if you don't believe us. We're witnesses to the fact that he got up. Verse 33. He got up, exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus this gets personal. Whom you crucified, in case you missed it the first time, both Lord and Messiah. Right, and then a hush went over the crowd. Awkward silence. And finally, someone had the courage to cry out. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? We believe you. How, somehow we know that we know that this is true. What do we know now? It's too late. We already, it's already done. We already did that. What do we do now? And this is what he says. He said, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Right? Which is a religious word, repent. Basically means admit your own wrongness, run into God's arms and turn from sin. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive, just as we have, the gift of the Holy Spirit to be a witness. All right, the promise, this promise is for you, and I love this, get this. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Right? You know who the 
all who are far off part is talking about? Right, that's us. Right, 2,000 years later, right? Us, sitting here, all who are far off. Right, this, is, this is Peter's way of saying, look, this isn't a Jerusalem thing. Right, this isn't just a Jewish thing. This isn't just a thing for this little group of religious people that, that God has started this thing with. These Jesus followers, these disciples, this is something that is going to spill onto the streets. Something that's going to start here in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the world. Or this is for all who are far off. Those who are far off geographically, or chronologically, spiritually, which would be, for, would be all of us. Or this is for all who are far off. Right? He's saying, look, just as Jesus has said, right, Peter, who do you think I am? Who do you say that I am? Right? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ. And Jesus says, yes! And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of death will not be able to stand against it. On this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of death. No matter how many people die, because this generation will die, nothing's going to be able to stop it. It's going to continue on forever and ever and ever is going to move out through my church, this message of God's grace, and it's going to touch the ends of the world. But this church is going to continue to thrive when this generation passes away. It's just getting started. And then he does you know, the first ever altar call. And uh, we're told this at the end of the passage, that those, all who accepted uh, his message, they, numbered, they were baptized, and they numbered 3,000. 3,000 were added to their number that day. Crazy! Big start, big opening day for the church, right? And this is, the, I mean, this is a significant message. If you have a problem with a church like Brian because you think it's too big, you would not have liked opening day of the church. And you're not going to like heaven either. It's going to be crowded. Maybe we'll split it into smaller groups or something. I don't know, right? But you wouldn't have liked it. It was huge. 3,000 people who say, we believe you. I don't know how, but we know, right? We're turning from this life. We're being baptized 3,000 people, and all it would have took was one person to be like, hey, sorry to rain on your parade, but before everybody drinks the Kool-Aid, follow me, because I know where Jesus is buried. Right? This is not something that happened years ago. This is two months ago. 3,000 people, just one. Just, hey, guys, sorry, but uh, follow me. I'll show you right where he's buried. He was killed right there. He's buried right there. Right? I'll show you. 3,000 people. So cool. 3,000 people who said, you know, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the son of the living God, that he was sent to die for our sins, that he rose from the dead, right? And so we repent and we're baptized. And then this day, this is opening day, first day of the church, and this is how it starts, this movement of Jesus that would become known as the church. And it wasn't an institution, and it wasn't a building, it wasn't a hierarchy, it was this movement this movement of people who had a personal encounter with the resurrected Jesus and who would be the witnesses of that to an unbelieving world, just like Jesus said, just like he predicted. Right? And 2,000 years later, here we are, just like he said. And ever since, this is the business that Jesus has been in, changing lives, building his church. And by the way, the word church in the Greek is ekklesia, which literally means congregation. It means gathering, assembly of people. It's people. It's not a building. It's always been about people. And through his people, God continues to change lives and move this, this movement of grace throughout the world. And now, we're part of a tribe, by the way, that includes one-third of the world's population. 
Right? We're talking about a couple billion people who claim the name of Jesus. Just evidence that this is what Jesus is doing. This is a business that he's in. And in certain parts of the world, it continues. It has been viral, which is interesting. And this is why this is a sticky point for us and why maybe you're feeling a little uncomfortable and you're not sure how to feel about this, is that in other parts of the world, the movement of Jesus is just continuing to spread. It's been unbelievable. Right, China, where it's been illegal uh, to be an outspoken Christian connected to Jesus' church, has been viral. It's been unstoppable. Korea, same story. Africa, same story. Now, the movement of Jesus is central in the east, eastern hemisphere and the southern hemisphere. But not in the west. Not anymore. Not, not here. Not in the states. Not in our culture. Because what happens throughout human history, and we find this throughout, is every now and then, the church takes its eyes off of Jesus. This Jesus who says, just as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the world. You are called to be a part of a movement, not an institution, not a hierarchy. The church takes its eyes off of that. And it starts to look at the things that often make up a church. It starts looking at the buildings, the facilities, the staff, or the attendance, websites, ministries, budgets. And rather than asking, how can we use this to send? How can we use what God has entrusted to us to serve an unbelief and broken world? What do we need to risk? How can we risk this to multiply it so that those who are needlessly suffering don't have to anymore? Rather than asking that, they start looking at all these things in the church and they start asking, oh, what if we lost this? How do we protect this? What's the safe move here? How can we, how can we control this? And what begins to happen over time is what began as a movement of Jesus becomes just a stale, dead institution. Or that stops moving at best, it becomes hierarchical, becomes insider-focused, becomes ritualistic, traditionalist, and even worse, it's other times, as we all know, becomes embarrassingly unethical, devastating, destructive, and it starts to look nothing like how this began and what it's supposed to be. And people begin doing, and religious leaders begin doing shameful things in the name of Jesus that has no reflection on what the church was created to be because the church was never meant to be an institution. It's meant to be a movement of God's grace through his people who demonstrate that love and proclaim that love to the world. So sometimes we get it right, sometimes we don't. And the reason that this is sticky, I think, for us is that we don't really see this. Right? In some spaces, I guess, in North America we do. And some churches get it right. Some ecclesias, some communities of faith who refuse to to bottle up and start focusing on one another and neglect the movement they're to be a part of. But for the most part, most of us, all right, we have not been infused with the life of being a part of that kind of movement. Rather, we bear the scars and the wounds of religious people and religious institutions, right? And so this is hard. Right? There, there's a challenge here for us that is going to be a little sticky for a lot of us. And the challenge is this. The challenge is that Jesus loves his church. And that we are to love it too. Ephesians 5, 25, is what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives just as what? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So Jesus, Jesus loves his church. And he calls us to love it too. He loves his church so much. Us, the people, the ecclesia, the gathering, the people, so much that he was willing to lay down his life for that church. But the church is called the Bride of Christ 
in biblical language, right? And I've said this before, but it, but it bears repeating, right? If you told me, if you came up to me, you're like, you know what, Aaron? I really like you. I just really don't like your wife. I'm going to punch you in the throat. Right? <laughs> it's not going to go well. And I will repent and I will apologize in the future and God will forgive me. Right? But honestly, it's not going to go well. Right? Because that's my girl. Right? That's, that's my bride. And is she perfect? No. And she'll be the first to tell you, I am not perfect either. But I love her. Right? You cannot, we, we cannot be friends if you don't love my wife. I'm just going to say that right now. That's how it is. Right? Husbands, wives. And Jesus says, this is my bride. I love my bride. We can't rightly love Jesus and, and reject his church in all its messiness because Jesus loves his church warts and all. Right? One, of the, one of the early uh, church fathers uh, said this. I didn't even know they could say things like this back then. He said, uh, said the church is a whore, but she is my mother. St. Augustine. The church is a whore, but she is my mother. Isn't that like shocking to the system if you grew up in church? It's like, whoa. I did not, I mean, you can say that. Like, yeah, you can't say stuff like that now, right? Don't tweet that, you know? <laughs> right, it's, it's kind of a brutal way to put it, but there's truth in it, isn't there? I mean, if it's a bride, it has got to be the most unfaithful bride at times throughout the story of the church. Right, there are seasons when we just get it so wrong, so unfaithful to an ever-faithful groom, and yet we're told that Jesus loves his church Anyway, it's always messy. It's always messy. And I think the tendency is, okay, we're skeptical. We are a skeptical generation, right? Increasingly skeptical. Anything that even bears the image whatsoever of, of institution, it's like we're just like, yeah, keep your distance. Right? If it's, it doesn't matter if it's a big company like Walmart, right? It's like, hmm, right? isn't Walmart the devil, right? Some of us think that, right? Some of us, I know that offended you, but it's there, right? P politics. Right? How awesome is our government, right? Don't you just love election season? Doesn't it just warm you inside? Right? Skeptical of government. Right? Institution across the board in the churches, I mean, man, perhaps the worst. Because we keep seeing highly public failures. Right? And we see guys in the television, right, with the big hair and the private jet, right, taking desperate old ladies for all they're worth. I'm going to take a love offering, you know? Preach on some sin, right? Young people tonight, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just embarrassing, right? Or, or you see another pastor, right? How many pastors have we got to see that just crash and burn and make bad decisions, right? And this is just part of the messiness of the church because there's no rule to keep them out, right? Because God's grace is non-discriminate. Right? When, I, when I started, there's always going to be pastors. There's always going to be pastors that, that steal from their churches and go to jail for it. There's always going to be pastors who run off with their secretary. Right, when I started in the pastorate, I got good advice. Two rules, I was told, to pastoring. Rule number one, don't touch the money. Rule number two, don't touch the secretary. <laughs> Those are good rules, you know? Like, that made sense to me. I watch TV, you know? Which is, by the way, when the time comes, by the way, that we can afford a secretary, right? I'm going to be lobbying for a personal assistant. His name is going to be Phil. He's going to be excessively hairy, right? We're not taking any chances. <laughs> Because it's a mess, right? And the truth is, is it's not just pastors. 
It's not just highly public leaders we just want to disassociate ourselves from. It's us too. And, and that's the beauty and the hard part, right? Is that we are a mess. We all do stupid things sometimes. And I feel like we talk about this at some point every Sunday about our own brokenness. And part of that is because you need to know that you're loved despite that, even though religion will always tell you the opposite. But part of that too is just to prepare you that you're going to be disappointed. Right? And, and to prepare you for the person sitting next to you, disappointing you. It's always going to be a mess. And the better that we do this, the more messier it's going to get. Because we're going to reach people who have high needs, who are hurting because they don't know Jesus, and we're going to invite them, we're going to love them, we're going to embrace them, and it's going to be a freaking mess. Right? It means that there's always going to be people here, the socially awkward person who won't leave you alone, you know, and you're just like, oh my goodness, so much effort to relate, you know? Right, or the, the just frustrating person in your life group who just dominates conversation and, and just doesn't seem to listen to anybody else, right? There's always going to be just that person that's hard, 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 hard to love. You're like, oh, God, I know you love everybody, but this, really, you know? <laughs> right, there's always going to be those people. And, and part of being the, the mess, the beautiful mess that is the church, is learning to live with that and embracing it and loving it anyway, because Jesus does. And he calls us to love it too. It's always going to be hard. It's always going to be messy. And yet what we need to get, and this is the challenge, again, is that Jesus loves his church. In all its messiness, with all its warts, right, with all its embarrassments, that Jesus loved it so much that he laid down his life for it. And he calls us to love it as well, with all its imperfections, and to boldly be that church. Right, so in the weeks to come, we're going to be talking more about what that means. But for now, I think that's enough to wrestle with, right, that we're called to love this imperfect, broken thing that is the church. Right? When people ask me <laughs> about Mosaic, when I go speak at conferences or I talk to other pastors around the country, right, every now and then you know, I hear, like, oh, we hear, about, we hear about Mosaic. It looks like things are just going awesome. Tell us about it. You know? And I always say the same thing. I always say, it is a mess, but it's a beautiful mess. You know, and if, and if you're like me, uh, it, it, I'm skeptical, and I'm, I can be cynical and negative, and I find my heart drifting into this place where I see all the things that are wrong with us or things that could be better, things that I wish I could fix. And so one of the things that I did this, this week as a discipline of reflection, I think maybe we should all do this, is, is I just started thinking through the things that I love about this church. And so I'd like to share some of those with you. I just shot some things down. On paper, it took about 10 minutes. It was really, really easy, actually. Reasons I love my church. I don't have to be perfect. That's a good one. People always ask, you know, or when I talk to people, and they're like, you know, I don't like the church. It's full of hypocrites. Hear that one a lot, right? And I, I would say, yeah, there's always room for one more. You fit right in. Come on, you know? I love that I don't have to be perfect. I, I love that I don't have to pretend. You know, that I can get up here and just, I can be me. When I'm talking to you down there, I don't have to put on a, a cheesy smile or pretend to be better than I am. I love that I can invite my unbelieving and skeptical friends here, and I know they're going to be embraced. Imperfectly embraced, but embraced nonetheless. They won't be ostracized or judged or alienated. I know that they'll be embraced. I love that we laugh a lot. I love that. That's not normal in church, is it? I don't feel like it is. It wasn't growing up but we laugh a lot. I love that we talk a lot. 
to one another. One of my favorite times every Sunday is when I get up here to teach and people just won't shut up because they just love, you just love talking to each other. It's one of my favorite moments. We talk a lot. I love that we play 80s covers on Easter Sunday. Uh, I love that uh, we're young, we're poor, and we're financially solvent. That's a good thing. I love that we refuse to guilt and manipulate people to motivate them to action. I love that we have more tattoos than people. <laughs> Makes me feel good. I love that on any given Sunday, you might hear a heavy metal electric guitar, a banjo, and a guitar. That makes me happy. Uh, I love that I get to, to baptize new Christians regularly. In Holmes Lake, I got to baptize. 39 degrees. It was awesome. And I love that I get to share that video with you in a couple weeks. I love that my atheist buddy, Brian, feels like he can come here and give me a bottle of bourbon because we're good friends. And he's not embarrassed. I love that he's proud to consider himself our resident atheist. I love that. That says something about you. I love that we made a sound system work for like over a year that shot sparks out every time we turned it on <laughs> and eventually caught on fire. <laughs> I love that. So that, by the way, we can invest more money into people. I love that my church watches clips from the dark night on Sunday morning and watches it in such a way that we blow subwoofers. True story. I love, that I, I love that at my church I don't get emails for accidentally using words like crap and freaking. And it's, it's a miracle. That's all I've said, so brace yourself. Just a matter of time. I love that we are a church of second chances and third chances and 254th chances. I love that we're a church that doesn't buy into the lie that you have to choose between grace and truth, but that they can go hand in hand. Most of all, I love my church because Jesus loves his church. Right? And it's not, I do love my church, but the challenge for us is even bigger. It's not just a call to love this particular local church. If you love Mosaic, awesome. I love Mosaic too. But it's even bigger, right? It's the churches we don't want to associate ourselves with. I know some are coming to mind. The leaders that are embarrassing, they're all a part of this glorious, beautiful mess that is the church. My hope and my prayer, right, over the next few weeks, that as we continue to journey together, that this would be a place that for those of you who have been wounded and scarred by religion and religious leaders, that this would be a place where we can start to strip away the baggage that we've attached to the word church and get back to what it was meant to be. Now, this would be a place where you can not only heal, but maybe, just maybe, be excited to be a part of the movement of Jesus that is his church. Let's pray. Lord God, I, I thank you that you love us, warts and all, that you love your bride even when she's unfaithful to you, that you thought us worthy to die for us, even when we're thoroughly convinced that we are not worth that at all. And Jesus, I ask that you would begin a work this morning in us. I know you've already begun it. I ask that you continue it that you would strip away all the baggage that have been attached to the word church, that you would start to change our mind about what you've created us to be together.
as a movement of your grace in this city and in this world. And so, God, we're, we're trusting you. God, I, I pray for those who are perhaps listening to this podcast from a distance because they can't bring themselves to go to church because of something that happened in the past. I pray for those that just have continued to, to sit at the, stand at the margins and watch what's going on here because they're just afraid to enter in because they've been so deeply hurt by religion and religious people. And God, I ask that this would be a place, as imperfect as it is, where they can find healing and start to actually get a vision, your vision, for the movement of you, of Jesus, that is to be your church. So God, we come before you now, and we give you what we have, as imperfect as it is, together, to worship you. And we ask that you would send us out as your witnesses, as conduits of your grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen.